Kimberly here. This is Macabish, cults, classics, and horrors. We're talking films, series, books, and life, and we're starting right now. I'm kidding. I don't know. That sounds like a really actually inviting threat. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> if I do wait, if I don't get work done, then Peter Atkins is going to call and give me shit. There you go. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this might be beneficial. Maybe I just won't do anything. I think also too, though, once people you get started on something and you don't get the following you expect, then people don't want to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. I, on the other hand, am the opposite. I am like, oh, this is great. No stress. Nobody's watching. This is great. Imagine my shock (laughs) when people actually listen to our podcast and keep coming back. That is what stresses me out. When it's at zero, I'm good. I can post (laughs) up a storm. It is amazing. And then I get that one subscriber. No, I I completely (laughs) understand. I I agree. I, um, I don't know whether that means... I always get these the wrong way around. We're either introverted extroverts or extroverted introverts, because I'm kind of the same. I, I know I have this um, laugh a minute public persona, but but I'm actually very shy. And um, so I know what you mean. There is that sense of if I think nobody's watching, I can make as much noise as I want. Yes. And mm-hmm. but. But you, so you want to keep that alive in your head. Just assume that nobody is watching, and <laughs> meanwhile, the have the other half of your brain pray that people do. You know, right. <laughs> this that's the only way I can do this. Because if I look at the metrics, I can't do it. I just can't do it. I'll tell Chris sometimes when we're starting. It's like I just need to talk for about an hour <laughs> to work into this because I can't do it. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, yeah, it we have a lot helps. of lead time. <laughs> It probably helps the authenticity too, right? Like when you think that nobody's listening, you can talk about whatever you are actually opinionated on. Uh, and that's what gets people to listen. Oh, yeah. Right. No, that, but then exactly when people right. are listening, you feel like you have to perform now. So it might change <laughs> your opinion a bit, right? Right. Right. See, but that's the thing. It doesn't change my opinion. I just don't want to hear about it. Like I get it. You, you hate. You hate this movie. I love. That's fine. Keep it to yourself. But they won't because it's the internet. They just oh, can't you, help it. Honey, turn comments off. Come on. You, <laughs> they will find people have emailed oh, me. Did, yeah, you know. Tell me about it. I it's saw crazy. your post on Instagram, and I don't appreciate. And it's ridiculous. Sure, sure. So sure. I do it anyway. It's yeah. just you know. Yeah, well, I've creepily yeah. stalked you to tell you how much I hate you. Right. Yeah, it's very odd. <laughs> yeah, they just I know. need us to yeah. know. People say that, you know, all attention's good. No such thing as bad publicity. Well, I beg to differ. It's... Not all attention <laughs> is good. But... Very true. Yeah. When I used to live in England, I, I would go to Paris because um, it's, you know, the greatest city in the world. And... Uh, and I had just enough French because, you know, it's, it, it's an act of politeness. Don't go and speak English in, in Paris if you can help it. Right. Um, so I would go and I would I would deliver my opening conversational gambit in, I'm sure, terrible French, but French. And, and that would be great. There it was. 
then the problem is, as a reward for me speaking in French, the person would then reply to me in rapid fire Parisian French. And oh, I wouldn't yeah. understand a fucking word they said. <laughs> <laughs> so it would be like, oh, now you've ruined it. Now I've got to admit that my French, and I had, <laughs> I had my little sentence ready, which is, je regret ma française est terrible. Uh, which is, I'm so sorry, my French is terrible. Could we speak English? I understood um, that. It's like mm-hmm. I understand French perfectly as long as a French person is not speaking it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, try yeah. having a person in Quebec speak it to you. Because they fast. They oh, yeah. Fast. I'm so sorry if you can hear my parrot who is also laughing at this. Conversation. <laughs> <laughs> at least she has a good sense of humor. <laughs> Sure. Did you say did you say parrot? Yes, I have a parrot. And she mm. thinks when I'm talking, we're talking. If I'm laughing, I, oh, then we're laughing. That's exactly how parrots should think. They're, that's right. There you go. But she's on the other side of the house, but she will emote. She knows. <laughs> she knows. <laughs> what, what what is the parrot's name? Oi. Boy. Oi, O-Y. Oh, oi. Oyster. <laughs> oi. <laughs> oi. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that's nice. That's, um, that's like London street thug talk. <laughs> that's how you, you, you open a challenge. Oi, are you looking at me? It, it's, some, it's sometimes a challenge. Yes. <laughs> right, right. Well, none of us have actually seen this pair. Right. You have. She's been on my feet. <laughs> Pirate she picks movies all the time. Yes. No, I, I've seen several of her selfies. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, yeah, but, you know, you've only seen them online, right? Catfish parrots. No, that's it's there. True. It's true. <laughs> it's true. You know how bizarre that would be? I'd be back here laughing at myself and saying I have a parrot. That would be so odd. <laughs> <laughs> that. This is starting to sound like the first act of a Brian De Palma movie from the 70s. <laughs> it's like, or a William Goldman script, uh, Ira Levin. It's like, yeah, for the first hundred pages of this book, we think it's a parrot. Yeah. And the other shade drops on page 101. Oh my God, it's her twin sister. <laughs> that would be horrible. That'd be a great movie, actually. It would be a great movie. I want to see that movie. Yeah. Carlos, get on that. You know, Carlos, Carlos. Uh... <laughs> oh, Jesus. He wants to make movies. <laughs> when well, he grows up. I get, then you should. And again, like we said with the other stuff, the democratization of technology, make a movie on your damn phone, man. That's great. Or, yeah. or, do, you, or do you want to do it the hard way and go get a six? Cinema and Bolex and shoot black and white silence like we all had to. Yeah, come on, Carlos. Where's your art film? I want to stay with tradition, so I want to do it the hard way. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's oh god. No, no, you don't trust me. I mean, <laughs> no, I'm, joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I yeah, I know. I know. It's uh, yeah. No, you think back, and it was like, my god. Film was expensive. Nobody mm-hmm. had a camera, and uh, you know, Clive Dog and I made the, this thing called the Forbidden mm-hmm. Shot between 1975 and 1978, and, and like the the effort, the what do they call it, risk reward ratio, or the 
effort to output. Anyway, I mean, um, load, yeah, and it was, we had a 16 mm, a silent 16 mm Bolex camera. And, uh, and it was, that was hard enough. And then, and then fucking Clive had a bright idea. Let's, we're going to shoot it in negative, but paint the sets and people as if we're shooting in positive. It'll be a wild effect. <laughs> I was like, you know, that's big talk for the guy who's not getting covered in white fucking paint. <laughs> uh, but youth, we did anything. But so, I, so do you make movies? Have you made movies? Are they up there? Um, no, well, yeah, I made one short so far, uh, just on my own, and the second short right now, it's uh, it's being submitted to a couple of festivals as part of the anthology. So, yeah. Oh, that's great! Great. A lot yeah. of that is thanks to uh, Kim over here, just pimping me out on the show. <laughs> hey, man, I'm not scared to ask. I'll get that no for you. <laughs> if I say yes, then we'll take a yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, that that that's the secret. Once you are unafraid of the no, then you can just get on with shit. It's true. And in fact, the sooner you get the no, the the better, because you know where you are then, and then ask the next person or do the next thing or whatever it is. But yeah, the um Anything that helps you move towards doing something rather than only thinking about doing something uh, is good. And even if it's a painful thing, like somebody saying no or somebody bad mouthing something, it's like plow, plow through. Right. Because uh, it's it's better to have done something than not. Right. And also, Chris, he's you know he's a writer. Oh, you're bringing and, me into this. And too, we, man? but but listen, we love but full listen. moon. And they love Full Moon, <laughs> and we just are of the opinion Full Moon could benefit from possibly Chris and Carlos's unique experiences, obsessive film fan. Sure. And, and so you guys are a studio. You got all the talents between you, Kimberly. You could score it, right? You've. I could. There you go. So you got uh, all just... the bases covered. Right. So I just drag people in off the street and then I <laughs> and, and they're all embarrassed waiting for me to say something. So, mm -hmm. And I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's good. I mean, how else are you supposed to do it? I don't know. Well, so, no, that's great. So you have the producer gene, which is uh, which is the rarest. I mean, clearly you have the artistic gene as well. I'm looking at your graphic now. It's great. But um, but, yeah, no, that producer gene of. I'll make this happen is um, is vital, especially in filmmaking. Because, you know, obviously the directorial gene is also vital and the writing gene is vital. But producing is a different thing. Producers make shit happen. And it's, um, it's an underrated quality of vital importance. You're right. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, I, I've been sitting here dreaming about making movies for 20 years now and I haven't done it but then when Kim comes into the picture and starts doing all these producerial type fucking things now there I'm all go. of a sudden making them right? so. <laughs> well that's great that's great yeah we gotta add to it we we love the horror films instead of just sitting around talking about it let's yeah, make no, something no. happen that's exactly right that's um does I, I don't know well I'm, I'm sure Chris does because uh you say his his thing is books 
Um, mm. there's, there's a great English horror writer called Ramsey Campbell. I don't know mm-hmm. if you guys have, yeah. Yeah, I'm familiar um, with him, yep. Yeah, and his, his thing, yeah, he's the most awarded guy in the field. He's got like 12 Life Achievement Awards, 47 Stokers. Um, wow. And I'm, I'm exaggerating for comic effect, but not by much. He, he is, no, yeah, not by much. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And um, But the thing is, he's always, well, I speak from a position of prejudice. I, I've been friends with Ramsey for 40 years, but, um, but he's, two things that are great he is um although he is most definitely on what they would call the literary end of horror and is respected by writers Mm -hmm. who are not necessarily into the genre they nevertheless recognize a master stylist when they see one but despite that um ramsey is has no truck with those sort of mealy-mouthed euphemisms um when they say what do you do i write horror is what he says always, and, um, because in his head horror is, is, is a big tent. But um, but the other thing that I, I love that he always said is when people say, as they sometimes foolishly will, like we need a justification. But they'll say, well, what is your aim, Ramsey? Why do you write horror? And he always says, because I just want to give. I, I hope that I can give back to the field a tenth of the pleasure it has given me. And I think that's great. And I think that's what you guys are saying. It's like you, you want, we love this shit so much that you want to contribute. Mm-hmm. You're good, bad, or indifferent. It's like, um, let's, let's throw some crap at the wall, see if it sticks. Yeah. It's true. There's plenty of people all over the internet giving their opinion about everything under the sun, including horror. We hear about it constantly. Mm-hmm. Like, what sure. if we did something? Yeah, Do no, something. That's, that's exactly right. That that's how that's how all good bands get started. Um, you know, like somebody learns two chords and makes his friend play bass. You know, and oh, yeah. suddenly you're the Beatles. It's uh, <laughs> true. Yeah, think, no, it it, it is it, it is true. It's exactly um, like you're saying, Peter. It's mm-hmm. like I uh, it, I crave certain types of movies that maybe used to be made or was only made of like a few times. And when I don't see that being made, especially in the horror genre, I it's, it's, I'm responsible to make that fucking shit for other people as well. Right. So there you go. Good. Good. Being opinionated is, uh, is a, is a very important trait to have because, um, your fury at the failings of other things can drive, as you were just saying, Carlos, can drive you to say, well, I can be at least as bad as that, which, which, which is great <laughs> to make right. you do stuff. Um, but my, my sort of rule of thumb, now that people are kind enough to have me on podcasts and radio shows and stuff and talk, is because I know that nobody... Nobody means to make a bad movie and nobody means to write a terrible book and nobody means to write a terrible song. But there are plenty of fucking terrible books, movies and songs out mm-hmm. there. Um, so so my, my personal feeling in terms of public conversation is I won't badmouth things. Um, but as all my friends will assure you, 
I am as, as opinionated an asshole as everybody else. There's shit out there that I, my fucking head spins at how awful it is. But, but I just figure people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. So I just, like my granny used to say, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. <laughs> so I just, I keep it to myself. But in private, I, um, I scream about this stuff. It's like, can you believe people like this shit? <laughs> my God. Same, same. Yeah, but in right. public, I'm like, oh, I saw this. You got, you, you should yeah, watch just, it and tell me yeah. what you think. Right. I won't, I won't. Because in the in the end, it's someone's living. Someone that was their dream once, and they That's made it right. Happen. And and as I say, nobody in nobody thinks I'll make a piece of shit. That's what I want to do. Right. Um, so yeah, and and also, I mean, especially now that we live, all of us live openly to everybody on social media. That it's like even more so than in the old days, people should realize that like the guy or woman you're bad-mouthing, they could read this thing, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. And it's, it's an actual person. Yeah. And you might be right, the movie might be terrible, but don't hurt their feeling. And I'm not suggesting people shouldn't review. Right. I mean, I think legitimate, you know, careful reviewing, even if the conclusion to which one comes in the review is, this is an irredeemable piece of shit. Um, <laughs> right. you, you should be free to argue that case. I'm not suggesting people shouldn't do that, but but the casual, uh, the casual meanness on social media um, is like you just want to remind people that it's like that, dude. They they might Google themselves. It's just you know, think how you'd feel. So. Right. I'm always, I, I try to be aware of that. Well, like, it's one thing to say, oh, the pacing in this movie is bad or the right, search right. cheesy, but it's a whole other thing to say that the makers of this should be lynched. Burned in hell. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> right. So. Exactly. Yeah. And none of you us know, want that I, kind of review of our work. None of us. Right. Even though that's how we all talk in private, of course. Right. <laughs> it's like... I remember getting mad at, um, I won't name them. Um, there's a publisher, a well-known publisher of crime fiction, and they use their Twitter feed to post terrible sentences from manuscripts they get as submissions. And oh. it's just, it's fucking horrible mm -hmm. because you can bet that the poor bastard who's written that terrible sentence, of course they follow you. Mm -hmm. So they're going to read that feed and they're going to see their awful sentence being openly mocked by these people. And uh, I think that's just awful. Having said that, again, in private, nobody enjoys being mean about terrible sentences more than I do. But <laughs> not in public and not where the feelings can be hurt. It's right. Terrible. Exactly. Uh, I love mocking horrible writing. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it's oh, the same yeah, thing. No, like, I'm not going to do exactly. it. Exactly. It's how every sort of writer's round table amuses itself. Mm -hmm. Like, wait, wait, here, I got this one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah of course. Yeah. yeah. Did you read this one from this book? Oh, my God. It's yeah, so right. bad. This whole sentence is backwards. Right. 
right yeah so yes it's it's always good sport but but not <laughs> until somebody loses an eye you know, it's yeah. same old rule and um all three of you congratulations on the work you've already done the work you're going to do and yeah make music make pictures make movies make stories do thank it you. keep doing it right well thank, thank you, you. Much. thank you so much what a what well, an honor what a pleasure well no it really was a pleasure thanks a lot guys um have have a great day and stay in touch we will thank you you too okay this is the number one place for macabre cults classics and horrors for synopsis reviews and news go to macabre.com thank you for listening signing out until the next one (laughs) here's where i feel like if i were really good at giving interviews i would invent a really interesting backstory for myself but i feel like it's still kind of inspirational mm-hmm. for some people in the sense that i the path to becoming a best selling author it was i do not have an english degree i never worked in publishing i have no connections in publishing i don't know any editors or agents. I didn't live in New York. All of the stuff I saw on TV as a kid that involved becoming an author, I didn't do any of that. Remember, when I first started writing, like just in a notebook for myself as a teenager, the -hmm. internet did not exist and had not been conceptualized. Like the concept of you type it in a box and it goes out to the world, that was not a thing. And as far as I knew, would never be a thing. So the question people ask is like, well, growing up, did you did you want to be an author? It's like, well, growing up, I was living in a town of 5,000 people with uh, three stoplights and two restaurants. And the only, like there are no bookstores. The only books I had available to me were the paperbacks I could get at the pharmacy. And there was like a little, there's like one shop that sold like candy and stuff. And they had a little shelf of comic books and that kind of thing. And that was it. Mm-hmm. So everything I would love to say about <laughs> how uh, I grew up in the classics or, you know, aspiring to to read the great authors or wanting to be H.P. Lovecraft, I didn't have access to H.P. Lovecraft. Maybe they had them at the library, but I didn't go to the library. That was something nerds did. Uh, so if for the kids out there who feel like their future is aimless or feel like, uh, the job they would like to do doesn't exist, please remember I graduated high school in 1993. When I entered the adult world, when I left my public education, the internet still did not really exist as in, in 1993, there were a few extremely, you know, high tech tech nerds doing this thing called the internet, but the World Wide web, as we know it now was still not a thing. It's true. So the, the job that would let me, that would come to define my life did not exist. The technology did not exist. So that's why I, I try to tell the story as honestly as I can, because there are kids out there who are 16, 17, 18, 35, 37, who, who don't know what they're going to mm-hmm. do when they grow up. But it's like, hey, it may be the thing you were built to do doesn't exist yet, you know, and it may it may come along. So like in my in my case, 
I started blogging in 1997, 98, something like that, when I got my very first dial-up internet connection. And it was before the word blog existed. That right. word, this it's not just before social media. It's not just before Instagram. It, it was before you could do video online because the bandwidth wasn't there so long before YouTube, before Facebook. No one knew the term social networking and no one knew the term blog, which is the thing that came before social networks. Right. And so why well, started typing? It's like, oh my gosh, this, these words that I'm, you can just type anything and people have to look at it. Like, right. <laughs> and it was like, wow. So all of these gatekeepy things that I thought were going to keep me from ever writing for an audience, because the idea of like how you get from small town to being the writers you see in the movies, like in the movie Misery, where he has he goes to like New York and he's in a New York apartment, like a penthouse, and he talks in person to his agent and goes to these cocktail parties, these launch parties in New York. Like, how do you get from rural Illinois to that? And the answer is you don't. There's no there's no pathway. So the idea of being a writer on that level, it was in this. I, I dreamed of it in the sense that little kids will dream of being an astronaut. Like those right. kids are not thinking in terms of, well, I can join the Air Force and become a test pilot and become an officer. They're, they just have this dream of being in space. Well, right. it's the same thing. There was no concept of, so I went to college and went into journalism because I thought, well, that will at least let me write things for people. But that industry was already dying by the time I graduated. But meanwhile, I was just writing stuff as an amateur online and slowly building an audience because I was extremely fortunate. As much as I thought of myself as being unfortunate for being born what seemed like a thousand miles away from the action, I got in on the ground floor of the internet. I was blogging in the late 90s when you know 60 or 70% of the population still didn't have their own connection at home, internet connection. Right. So in that sense, I was extremely lucky. So the, the book that would eventually make me make my career as an author um, was a story that I posted, started posting in the early 2000s. And every year at Halloween, I post a little more of it. And it was just, I posted it for free. And it went back then, we would say it, it went viral. It became, it, it started to get its own following, but it was just there on my blog. It was like, my blog was just it, whatever I felt like writing, silly movie reviews, essays, whatever. That at Halloween, I would switch over and write this, write on this fiction story. And it gained a little bit of a following. But again, even that, even then, the idea of someone writing on the internet getting a book deal, that had never happened. Like right. it literally had not happened yet. That whereas now, if you have like a successful Twitter account from that, you can get a book deal because all they care about is do you have an online presence to sell to sell books? Back then, there was still no pathway. There was like no respect for people writing online. Online because why? Why should there be? You you might be ten years old for all they know. It was all anonymous. It was all just text. So why would they hand a book deal to somebody like me? Right. So I was I wasn't doing this like okay I've got a strategy. I'm going to write this on the internet and then I will do this and this and this and then boom, I'll be a famous author and and be able to do it full time. That thought never entered my head because again that wasn't that wasn't an existing career path. Mm -hmm. And then what happened was people would send me after about five years of this, I had a novel length story. And then as I went, 
it was great because the great thing about writing on the internet is you want to change something you've already written. You can just open up the CMS and go right in there and change it. So I could, I could write the payoff for something and then go back and drop it in foreshadowing. And if you read it now, it's like, oh, he's a genius. He set this all up in advance. It's like, well, no, I actually came up with the other part. And I went and edited it back in because I, I've given away for free. What, what are you going to do? Complain? It's, you, it's, right. it's mm-hmm. um, so it was this living document. And then after, after I had a full novel link thing, even then, even then it's just like, okay, well, I guess I'll just keep, keep writing stuff. And you know, I'll keep writing additional editions of it, but there still wasn't like, okay, this is my meal ticket. And so what happened was somewhere around 2005, 2006, people were sending me photos where they had printed out my book and put it in like a three ring binder so they could read it like a book. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, look, I made a book. Nice. So I was like, well, this is idiotic. So I went to Cafe Press at the time. Maybe they still do. They used to have a thing where you could upload a PDF and, and a cover image and you could sell print on demand. People could get a physical copy of your book that way. Right. Just riddled with typos, no formatting, but it was an actual physical copy people could hold in their hands. Um, and then I just sold it at cost because they were very expensive, which makes sense. They're having to print it. You know, it's like mm. making a meal from scratch every time a customer walks in. Like that's a very expensive way to do it, but it's also a miracle. I, I was so proud, but you couldn't uh, like order it at Amazon or go to a bookstore and get it. You could only get it from ordering it from Cafe Press. But my thinking was, well, it's better than people trying to read it off a binder and having to print it out. You know, like the cost of the the inkjet cartridges you're going to use is about the same. <laughs> thing. Oh yeah, um, and so sold a few hundred copies that way, and then a small like print on demand publisher called Permuted Press came along, and they offered me actually an, an advance of a few hundred dollars, which I thought was insane, to do it as a proper. They would put a copy editor on it get a, a better cover on it, and then they would have an ISDN number, so it would actually be in on Amazon and libraries if bookstores wanted to order it, they could, you know, if they could order it. So that was a big step up, but it was still, there was none of the, the things you, you associate with a big publisher in terms of there being a publicity campaign or having relations with, you know, or like foreign rights or an audiobook or having relations with the bookstore chains where you can get them to order 3000 copies of it. There was none of that, but it's still to, you know, me and my family and everybody else, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm a published author it's a miracle so it it, this wound up on the shelves of some barnes and noble stores and people were showing me pictures like oh they've got a copy of your book for some reason (laughs) and i sold like i think about three thousand copies that way which meant i made you know you're only making like 10 percent of the cover price so i i don't know I, i made several hundred dollars off of it which again i thought that was the most people that would ever read a book I had written. It's, and I, I thought that was a miraculous number considering the disadvantages it had, not knowing that when you go into a Barnes and Noble, almost all of those books on the shelf you see only sold a few thousand copies. Right. Like like I didn't realize that's how publishing worked. I still thought, Oh, this is a, a guerrilla campaign. And then by extreme long odds. So, so like the sales, of that started to taper off to where I was selling like four or five copies a week. I thought, well, okay, that that's the end of that. Like I've, I've had my moment in the sun as an author. 
I will go back to my life as as a blogger. Again, my job during the day at this point, I was working in a cubicle at an insurance company doing data entry. I, mm-hmm. I wasn't, it wasn't copywriting. It wasn't anything creative. It was a, a job I got through a temp agency. And then they hired me on, I think I was making like nine fifty an hour. So this whole time, like my day, I'm just a guy who bounces around to office jobs, going through temp work. I had gotten a journalism degree. I'd worked in journalism for about a year and a half at a local TV station and dropped out of it. And I, I hated it. And also I was very bad at it. Mm-hmm. So the idea of, of still, it was just, at this point, I'm in my early 30s. You know, I was born in 1975. So it's like, okay, I've had my fun little thing where I, like, I'm still blogging in my spare time, making no money off of it. Because again, it, writing on the internet has just never been profitable under any model. Um, and it's like, I've had my brief moment where I can tell people, oh, you know, actually I wrote a book, you know, that, that came out. It's actually on some shelves. Like, oh yeah, what's it called? And it'd be my fun little anecdote I can tell, but Sales have dropped off. Nobody cares about it. I'm not making any money off my website. And it's like, I'm 31 years old or 30 years old at this point. I have to leave this writing stuff behind and and go train for some sort of a real job. And so I started, like I took classes at a local community college and databases and Microsoft access and tried to learn some basic programming, trying to see if I had any kind of an aptitude for that kind of thing. Cause it was obvious at that point, that's what the future was learning how to do networking, you know, all, all of that stuff. They were constantly hiring in that, but it was obvious the writing thing hadn't, hadn't worked out. In 2007, I get an email from uh, Don Coscarelli, who was a horror mm-hmm. writer, producer, director. He made, made the phantasm movies. Mm-hmm. He had just made Bubba Hotep, which was a horror buddy comedy asking if he could, like, did I have an agent? He wanted to get the film rights to this book I'd written, John Dies at the End, that he had somehow, somehow against incredible long odds gotten a copy of. Because again, only a few thousand copies exist. Uh, that one of the people who would have it would be someone in the, in the in, who had the power to get a film made was ludicrous. I didn't answer the email. I thought it was a like a, a phishing hoax. Oh. <laughs> so he he persisted in emailing me and eventually dug up a, a phone number at some point and asked if he could talk to me on the phone and says i want to i want to buy the rights to this um and i want you know, I want to make it it's like it's like right in my wheelhouse it's it's because it, it, you know the tone's very similar to Baba hotep it's it's similar to what he does it's got like a mind-blowing twist that you can put in there um and we talked about it. And I, again, at the time, I had no agent. I, I had to call around. Like I opened, went on the internet and tried to Google like names of attorneys that had done entertainment law or, or book contracts or anything. I, I certainly wasn't going to ask to get a literary agent because it's like, I'm not, I'm not a writer. I, I work at an insurance company. This is, I just, the thing I said to the lawyer, I left it on his voicemail. I was like, I, I've already have a deal getting done. I just need you to look over the paperwork and make sure that it's all boilerplate, that I'm not accidentally giving away any rights that you wouldn't expect. Um, So went back and forth on that. It took a few months. Um, People always ask, well, how much, how much did he pay for the rights? And it's like, do you understand how irrelevant that is? Right. Because if Mm -hmm. he had called me and said, Hey, 
I'm going to make this into an, into a movie. The only thing is I need you to pay me $5,000 to help get it made. <laughs> I would have went out and borrowed the money because it, it, you've won the lottery as a writer when a book gets turned into a movie. You just have. Right. As I was about to find out. Because again, it's not that, it's not the way lots of writers have sold the rights and film and TV rights to stories. But the typical thing that happens is it goes into a pile of right. scripts and story ideas of properties and stuff will sit for 20 years before maybe somebody will try to make a show out of it. And then maybe that pilot doesn't get picked up or they'll try to make a movie and then it dies in development. Here was someone, someone saying, no, this is going to be my next project. Cause he, he had originally been doing a sequel to Baba Hotep. I think there were some issues with like, like actor availability, that kind of thing. He's like, mm -hmm. well, I want to do this. It's not that I want to acquire the rights and just have it among the pile of stuff on my desk. I want to make it. So Amazing. we got that done. And then about three weeks later, I get a call from crack.com, a comedy website startup offering me a job as a writer editor there working from home making twice what I was making at my office job. So at the moment I had given up on writing, there was a span. It was a three week span where the, the film rights to John Dice to the end got sold. And then I got a call saying, or an email saying, Hey, we, we want you to come interview for this the editor spot at this new um, comedy website we're starting. And that was that, like I've been a full-time writer ever since. And prior to that point, I had never been, published in any capacity. I had never sold a piece of like an article to a magazine. Again, I had never, like I had attempted to sell a book idea to an agent that it went nowhere. There was like one brief conversation that it was dismissed. I had never uh, done anything. I'd never, to this day, I've never written a query letter. I actually don't know what that is. I've never had to shop for agents or pitch to editors. I've never pitched a book before. Because once I sold the film rights, I immediately got con like the news went out in the trades and then immediately got contacted by a division of Macmillan at St. Martin's Press, Division Macmillan, one of the, what, three publishers that, are, that still exist, mm -hmm. uh, saying we want to pick up the rights to John Dice Dan or do it as a do it in a hardcover, full blown hardcover run. St. Martin's had to buy the rights from the book from permuted press and then they separately like looped me in on the deal like they paid both of us kind of an unusual situation but it was an unusual path to publication where i went from self-publishing to print on demand to now a hardcover full hardcover book deal with one of the mega publishers um but we worked it out so that they because they wanted to keep me in the loop because they wanted to do, do another round of editing and write a new afterward and, and basically have me involved to write future books so the book gets released in hardcover in 2009. It earned back its advance in seven days um, and became an instant hit. At the time I was writing a sequel, the title would be, This Book is Full of Spiders. Seriously, dude, don't touch it. <laughs> um, at the time, that book would come out right around when the film was getting done. Because in the meantime, the film would wind up out coming out in 2012. So it was a five-year process. And again, that's the way it works in film. You just don't, like he acquired the rights and then I just heard nothing for two years. Mm -hmm. And then he, I hear out of the blue and I assumed, oh, well, they've, they've dropped it or whatever. Because again, I have enough friends who are writers to know 
the, the phrase they use is that in Hollywood, nothing gets made. You mm-hmm. get tons of meetings, tons of people saying yes, but no shows ever get picked up. No movie, like for every one thing that actually winds up on your screen, 10,000 projects got started and died. So right. I thought, oh, well, he's moved on to make something else or some other project came along or, or maybe, uh, that maybe Bruce Campbell got freed up and they wanted to do another, another thing together, whatever. And I had accepted it. And then he, he contacts me and says, Hey, we've got Paul Giamatti on board as a producer. We got a cast together. Like we're doing, we're now, we're like reading, doing readings for the, the roles of John and Dave. We want to cast unknowns, blah, blah, blah. And like they're picking out locations so like, Oh, this is, Oh, this is happening. So the way it it happened was the film debuted at Sundance in January 2012. Uh, They had me come out there. I flew out there, did publicity with the cast, um, did like an onstage Q&A at the screening with, they they insisted on bringing me along to all that stuff. Um, And then the second book came out right at the height of the publicity around the film. And this book is full of spiders is the one that made the New York times bestseller.